This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to this event on U.S. empire and autocracy uh, in the Middle East, which is brought to you by the U.S. Committee to End Political Repression in Egypt. Uh, We thank Haymarket Books for offering us a platform. This is, I think, the third time they've done that for an event that we've put together. The co-sponsors of this event are Internationalism from Below, Uh, Democracy for the Arab World, or DAWN, the Middle East Research and Information Project, MEREP, the Freedom Initiative, uh, and the International Committee of Democratic Socialists of America. We have three speakers uh, today, uh, and after I say a few introductory uh, remarks, uh, they will uh, go in the following order. Uh, Jamie Allenson is Senior Lecturer in Politics and International Relations at the University of Edinburgh, Scotland, where he teaches courses in the politics of the Middle East. He's a member of the Salvage Editorial Collective and author of the forthcoming book, The Age of Counter-Revolution, States and Revolution in the Middle East. His previous book, The Struggle for the State in Jordan, The Social Origins of Alliances in the Middle East, was a co-winner of the Jadalia Political Economy Book Prize. Uh, Asli Bale is professor of law at the UCLA School of Law, founding faculty director of the Promise Institute for Human Rights and former director of the UCLA Center for Near Eastern Studies. Her research focuses on public international law, including human rights and humanitarian law, and comparative constitutional law with a focus on the Middle East. Her scholarship has appeared in numerous law and peer-reviewed social science journals. She is co-editor of two volumes addressing institutional design and comparative constitutional law from Cambridge University Press. She is also co-chair of the Advisor Council for Middle East and North Africa Division of Human Rights Watch and chairs the Middle East Studies Association of North America's Task Force on Civil and Human Rights and the Middle East Studies Association's Global Academy. Uh, there is an, a, a chat in the chat. There will be an article uh, with an interview with Asla about the Mesa Global Academy. The third speaker is Allison McManus, who is the research director of the Freedom Initiative, where she leads a team of researchers in documenting prison-related abuses and advocating for detainees in the Middle East and North Africa. She was formerly research director of the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy. She's on the steering committee of the U.S. Committee to End Political Repression in Egypt, which is the organizer of this event. 
the Freedom Initiative and Allison are just uh, today beginning to circulate a petition uh, to the British and American governments about the Egyptian political prisoner, Allah Abdel Fattah, and a link to that will be put in the chat. And uh, I'm Joel Bainan, uh, Donald J. McLaughlin Professor of History Emeritus at Stanford University. Uh, in addition to having taught at Stanford for 35 years, I was for two years Director of Middle East Studies at the American University in Cairo, and I'm a former president of the uh, Middle East Studies Association of North America. So here we go. Uh, the premise of this event is that the U.S. empire is not monolithic in the Middle East or elsewhere. It relies on alliances with countries whose interests don't entirely uh, align with U.S. interests, and there have always been conflicts among uh, U.S. allies and client states. The tensions in maintaining U.S. imperial hegemony in the Middle East were apparent at the so-called Negev summit, which was hosted in late March by Israel's foreign minister, Yair Lapid, and attended by the foreign ministers of the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Egypt, and Morocco, along with U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. The event's single clear achievement was public Arab acknowledgement of Israel's full partnership in an axis of reactionary powers which opposes popular demands for democracy and social justice and reinforces autocracy across the entire Middle East and North Africa and targets uh, regime change in Iran. This axis of reaction is aligned with, but not fully obedient to the United States. This is the fruit of the 2020 Abraham Accords in which the United Arab Emirates, the UAE and Bahrain, and subsequently Morocco and Sudan normalized their relations with Israel. The Abraham Accords were supposedly a reward to Israel for halting its move to annex parts of the West Bank. In fact, Israel has continued to entrench its occupation of Palestinian territory, de facto annexing about 40% of the West Bank and exerting full control over another 20%. The UAE had, for several years before the conclusion of the Abraham Accords, been seeking to purchase F-35 stealth fighter jets, the most advanced aircraft in the US armory. Absent UAE normalization of relations with Israel, Israel and its supporters in Washington would surely have opposed such an arms sale. The Abraham Accords contained an unannounced stipulation that Israel would not object to the UAE's acquisition of F-35s. Another achievement of the Abraham Accords was that in exchange for normalizing relations with Israel, Morocco gained U.S. recognition for its occupation of the Western Sahara since 1975 in defiance of numerous UN resolutions advocating a referendum of the inhabitants to determine its future. Despite these nefarious accomplishments, the Arab ministers at the summit were unhappy that the Biden administration is seeking to restore the nuclear agreement, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which the Obama administration reached with Iran in 2015 and which President Trump abrogated. Israel and the Arab parties, as well as Saudi Arabia, which while not present was a moving force behind the summit, would be pleased if the United States went to war with Iran on their behalf. Israel has been provoking Iran to achieve this outcome by assassinating Iranian nuclear scientists, sabotaging its nuclear software, and other actions, including possibly the assassination last Sunday of a senior member of Iran's Revolutionary Guards Quds Force in Tehran. 
Secretary of State Blinken's agenda was to enlist the support of the summit attendees for U.S. policy on Ukraine. But Saudi Arabia, the absent presence at the summit, has refused to increase its oil production to make up for the shortfall of Russian oil on the global market. Egypt reasserted its neutrality in the Russo-Ukrainian war and is considering buying Soviet, uh, Soviet, Russia's most advanced military aircraft, the Su-35. Israel has also declined to take a strong anti-Russian position. Since Russia invaded Ukraine, Russian oligarchs have transferred their ill-gotten offshore wealth from London and New York to Dubai. Attracting dirty foreign capital and blurring the lines between business, diplomacy, and security is a hallmark of UAE foreign policy. Mubadla Capital, a a unit of Abu Dhabi's $243 billion state-owned investment company, has been an investor in the notorious Israeli spyware company NSO since 2019. Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed al-Nahayan, the de facto ruler of Abu Dhabi and principal architect of the axis of reaction, is one of Mubadala's largest investors. The Israeli government authorizes all exports of NSO's Pegasus spyware. A senior Israeli cabinet minister confirmed, we sold this technology to the UAE, Bahrain, and Saudi Arabia so they can fight together our common enemy, Iran. In November 2021, the U.S. Department of Commerce blacklisted the NSO group, charging that it had supplied its Pegasus spyware to governments that had used it to maliciously target government officials, journalists, business people, activists, academics, and embassy workers. A Washington Post investigation revealed that in the months before the 2018 murder of Jamal Khashoggi, a Saudi dissident and journalist at the Washington Post, the UAE security officials installed Pegasus software on two phones belonging to his fiancée, Hanan al-Atar, allowing her conversations and movements to be monitored without her knowing that her phone was compromised. Six weeks after the assassination, the CIA leaked its conclusion that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman had ordered the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi. The United States has no interest in Khashoggi's assassination, but it does have an interest in placating the Saudi regime, so it has dropped the matter. Egypt maintains the largest carceral regime in the region, with at least 60,000 political prisoners. During the presidential election campaign, candidate Biden promised that President Trump's favorite dictator, Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, would receive no more blank checks if he were elected but President Biden has reneged on this commitment. The 2020 State Department report on human rights in Egypt lamented the Sisi regime's extrajudicial killings, violence against LGBTQ people, and forced child labor, in addition to its massive detention of political opponents. Last fall, Congress made a weak gesture to implement Biden's promise by withholding 300 million of Egypt's annual 1.3 billion in military aid. However, Secretary Blinken reduced the amount and withheld only a symbolic $130 million. In January, just days after the Biden administration said that Egypt had not met the conditions for releasing that withheld amount, it approved an additional $2.5 billion in arms sales to Egypt, which the State Department said will support foreign policy and national security of the United States. Thus, in order to 
maintain this unruly action axis of reaction, the United States acquiesces in massive violations of human rights in Egypt and Saudi Arabia. It has actively participated in the Saudi-UAE war of aggression in Yemen, which has resulted in 377,000 deaths at least, some 60% of them due to hunger, lack of medicine and basic health care, unsafe water, and, un and an outbreak of cholera, while over 24 million Yemenis require humanitarian assistance and 19 million face food insecurity. Morocco's illegal occupation of Western Sahara has been legitimized, and Israel's ever more egregious violations of Palestinian human rights merit only weak expressions of U.S. concern. So now we'll go to our three panelists. Each one will speak uh, for about 12 minutes. Um, I'll ask them some questions, or they'll ask each other some questions afterwards, and then we'll open it up to uh, audience uh, Q&A. So Jamie Allenson, please. Okay, uh, thank you very much, Joel, for the introduction. And thank you to all of the sponsors for inviting me to this important event. I'd like to follow on from what Joel said and focusing on uh, an, what he described as an axis of reaction comprised of Saudi Arabia, the UAE, uh, the Egyptian military regime, and Israel in alliance with US imperialism in the region, which I would actually describe as a, a counter-revolutionary bloc, which has hardened in the past decade uh, since the uprisings of 2011, but which has roots that reach further back. And the key point I want to make is that this is not just an alliance of, of states assuring what they refer to as their security, which is a word in academic and policymaker language that covers a multitude of very egregious uh, sins but of ruling classes that seek to repress and continue to exploit the populations that they rule. Or in the case of Israel, a settler state that seeks to maintain and extend dispossession of the indigenous population of the land that it has colonized. And this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, during the so-called Arab Cold War of the 1960s, uh, Saudi Arabia was the center of opposition to then radical Arab nationalism, which was embodied by uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, uh, and the two fought a war in Yemen, which is again a battlefield because of that opposition. Uh, the revolutionary left in the region at the time usually identified their enemies as the tripartite forces of Zionism, imperialism, and Arab reaction. But this changed in the late 1970s in two big uh, ways which laid the groundwork for the kind of uh, developments that we've seen in the past 10 years. Uh, first of all, the Iranian Revolution of 1979, which did not begin as an Islamist or Islamic revolution, although it became one, uh, and which terrified the ruling classes of the Gulf and the wider region, but especially those um, which went on to form the Gulf Coordination Council, Cooperation Council, which was designed to oppose and contain the uh, Iranian Revolution. And the second huge change was that Egypt under Anwar Sadat turned away from the more economically redistributive and geopolitically anti-imperialist and anti-Zionist, or at least a willingness uh, to confront Israel uh, stance of his predecessor, uh, Nasser, and towards an alliance with the US uh, and private sector investment being sought from the Gulf. 
mainly. So as a result, Egypt recognized Israel, signed a peace treaty with Israel, uh, which was the reason that Anwar Sadat was uh, assassinated. And the upshot of this change then was that Egypt and Iran flipped, really. So that Iran, which had been the biggest uh, supporter or ally of the US in the region, became its opponent. And Egypt, which had been the biggest opponent, became a supporter. So <clears throat> the architecture of the region has kind of been developed from that point onwards. You need to remember that. These relations then between the bloc of Egypt, UAE, Saudi and, and Israel have always been forged by a shared interest in counter-revolutionary politics. And I just want to note that that doesn't mean that I regard the Iranian Islamic Republic as a particularly preferable or progressive uh, regime. And I, today I definitely argue it plays a counter-revolutionary role, uh, but it definitely emerged from a revolutionary change. I mean, there's un undoubtedly a kind of mass overthrow of the previous regime. Um, I also want to emphasize that the, although the ideological aspects of the, count the present counter-revolutionary bloc are important, particularly the fact that these are mainly Sunni countries, uh, ruled by regimes that are nonetheless highly hostile to the Muslim Brotherhood. At its core, this bloc is a project to preserve undemocratic ruling classes or fractions of them. So the Muslim Brotherhood, for all of their flaws, are actually a, ma a mass organization whose central strategy or aim is the idea that the citizens of the countries they campaign in should have some say in their government, which they expect to benefit from. But that's anathema to the ruling families of the UAE, the Saudi Arabia, and the Egyptian military hierarchy. And the fact that the Muslim Brotherhood offers an Islamic but hybrid or partially democratic alternative model drives the Saudi regime in particular to oppose it as a contender for ideological hegemony uh, as a model in the Islamic world. And a similar dynamic lies behind the sectarianization of the region in response to the emergence of the Iranian, the Islamic Republic, and predominantly Shia um, country, which has redoubled since 2011. Now, that doesn't stop the Saudis from sometimes collaborating with the Muslim Brotherhood, which are a fundamentally conservative group, um, where the latter are against greater democracy or opposed on sectarian grounds to other movements, for example, in Bahrain uh, or in Yemen, where Saudi cooperation with Muslim Brotherhood affiliates has caused a split with the UAE. But the most important moment in the formation of this bloc was the revolutionary uprisings of 2011, which spread across the region, starting in Tunisia, eventually leading either to a change of the head of regime or to state collapse and civil war, or both, in um, Libya, Yemen, Syria, Egypt, Tunisia, and the near toppling of the Khalifa monarchy in Bahrain. I refer to this as a revolutionary moment because these uprisings mounted a fundamental challenge to the autocratic political regimes that dominate the region, to its geopolitical hierarchies, and to the structure of class inequality and exploitation upon which these rest. This challenge forced the ruling classes of the region to respond to mount counter-revolutions, which fall into one of three camps. These are the three axes which have kind of torn the region apart since 2011. Um, the first of these were those that rhetorically supported the uprisings because they affected their enemies, uh, primarily the allies of the United States, only then to repress such uprisings when they reached their own borders. I'm thinking here of Iran, 
of the Assad regime in Syria, their allies uh, in Hezbollah. Second, there were those who supported political forms of revolution from which they would benefit, but which opposed social revolution or economic transformation. So the Muslim Brotherhood, Qatar, uh, Turkey under Erdogan, AKP. And third, the out-and-out counter-revolutionaries, um, the bloc that we're talking about, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and the Egyptian military in alliance with Israel, and the UAS, uh, the US, sorry, at first vacillating between the second and third blocks, and then after 2014, 2015, coming down hard on the third, uh, or joining the third, let's say. This counter-revolutionary bloc is linked politically, militarily, and economically. And the most important example of this is the coup in Egypt in 2013. Uh, as I'm sure most of you will know, everyone will know, the Egyptian revolution of 2011 resulted in a partial democratization and the election of a Muslim Brotherhood candidate, uh, Mohamed Morsi, heavily backed by Qatar, um, to the presidency in 2012. And it was a complicated dynamic. Perhaps we can discuss it, uh, the 2012-2013 kind of period. But the upshot is Morsi was overthrown in 2013 by an alliance of three elements, the Egyptian military in the form of SCAF, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, led by Abdel Fattah Sisi. Um, there's an incredible exchange recorded between Sisi uh, Abbas Kemal, uh, his chief of staff, uh, and uh, Sidhi uh, Sobhi, who's uh, the, the security uh, defense minister, sorry, um, where the latter says, we'll need 200,000 Egyptian pounds tomorrow for Tamarud, which was the group that was opposing uh, Morsi. Um, you know, the part from the UAE that they transferred literally says this. That's a quote. Um, and a later recording from Sisi's presidential campaign in 2014 features Sisi demanding another 10, I think, million is what he's meaning. He says another 10 from the UAE an additional 2% to be put in the central bank, and then expressing incredulity of being offered the sum of $30 billion, $30 billion um, from the GCC, Gulf Cooperation Council, up until that point. And CC says, I'm amazed these people have money like rice, which is true. I mean, he's, he was uh, being accurate. So between July 2013 and the beginning of 2015, Egypt received $23 billion from the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait. And the UAE also funded the lobbying efforts, efforts of the Sisi regime in Washington, uh, providing $2.7 million for that purpose. So this pattern of investment is, in fact, reprising and recharging the pre-2011 relationship and overcoming now, in a sense, the division into different counter-revolutionary axes across the region with a shared class interest. So just in March, uh, Joel mentioned the recent summit, but in March, kind of happening behind that, the UAE announced another $2 billion of investment in Egypt. Saudi Arabia transferred $5 billion directly to the Egyptian Central Bank. And even Qatar, so former enemies now coming back together, uh, pledged to match that $5 billion. So the ostensible purpose is to offset the crisis caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But it's also part of a broader alignment, as, for example, the UAE has now welcomed a visit from Bashar al-Assad, uh, meeting with Mohammed bin Zayed, so MBZ, two of the most kind of bloodstained figures of these counter-revolutions, uh, shaking hands with each other kind of over the bodies of Syrian and Yemeni uh, civilians for whose deaths they're responsible in the hundreds of thousands. Um, part of that is about trying to put a wedge between Assad, Russia and Iran, 
but also probably more importantly about getting UAE construction contracts for uh, reconstruction efforts in Aleppo. Um, how does this block come together with Israel and the US? So, as Joel said, this is not a monolith. This is not a case of just proxies or clients. Um, however, what the normalization of the so-called Abraham Accords and subsequently Sudan and Morocco has done is to formalize a pre-existing informal relationship and also place the Palestinian cause increasingly beyond the pale. So it becomes, it reverses a previous norm of Arab politics, which probably the Saudis are not ready to do yet in public, but we'll see. Um, it also establishes aid interdependency, so the, the kind of recipients of aid become dependent upon normalizing the relationships with Israel, and allows, as was mentioned, um, Gulf countries to buy previously blocked heavy military hardware from the U.S. that congressional representatives that are favor Israel, which is most of them, uh, would have previously blocked. Most significant, perhaps, is to say that it's a statement that popular legitimacy, which in the past, you know, would have supported the Palestinian cause, isn't a concern. So you can just ignore it. Um, it's not something you need to worry about anymore. But, and I just want to finish up here, this is not to claim these are simply proxies. We have imperialism as a competitive system. Increasingly so now. We're living in a much more multipolar world. And you can see this in how, for example, as we mentioned, the Saudis have responded to US pressure in OPEC to kind of increase production, which traditionally they would have done, I think 20 years ago, uh, probably would have done, um, to pressurize Russia. They're not. Um, the interest of these blocs is fundamentally counter-revolutionist, maintaining the repressive power over the populations they rule over. The interest of the U.S. is maintaining the general uh, presence and hegemony of that of, of the U.S. as the leading imperialist power in the region. Those aren't always the same interests, and they're not always the same interests with um, with Israel. So sometimes there are divisions amongst these groups. So, for example, uh, the Saudis are opposed to UAE's recognition of Assad. Um, they are also in trouble with uh, the UAE over Saudi backing of kind of Salafi and uh, Muslim Brotherhood militias in Yemen, who are fighting people that the UAE support in the South, the kind of southern separatists in, in Yemen. Finally, there are also, and I think this is probably a good place to end, new waves of revolutionary upsurges, which we can perhaps discuss um, since 2019, into which these counter-revolutionaries have not been entirely sure how to respond. So, for example, Saudi and UAE response to Sudan has been a bit different. Um, the UAE did not, or this group did not always favor the previous regime in Sudan because of their association with the Muslim Brotherhood. But definitely since the kind of coup in Sudan, they've moved closer. Um, I think I'll leave it there. I've kind of bit over time, but I look forward to hearing what others have to say. Thank you so much, Jamie. Uh, Asla, you're on. Thanks so much. Uh, and thank you to all the organizers of this event. And I mean, it's just a pleasure to be here with all of you. And I'm looking forward to the conversation. 
I thought I would uh, just use my opening remarks to talk about the ways in which the Abraham Accords in particular reflect both an entrenchment of U.S. empire and also a realignment. Uh, and I'll just try to do that over the next couple of minutes. Um, so for lots of reasons that we've already heard, it's obvious that the Abraham Accords represent something deeply troubling uh, for the region and at the same time, a continuation and acceleration of earlier dynamics. One element of the Abraham Accords that I wanted to underscore is the de degree to which they represent the most recent element in the U.S. arsenal of presenting war as peace and presenting essentially military strategy and the doubling down on violence and conflict as in fact a project of stability and order for the region. So in the case of the agreement itself, what has been sold as reflecting the ability of diplomacy to advance peace between Israel and Arab states has instead served as an endorsement of arms sales and political favors between the United States and a series of its authoritarian clients. And this is now just going to be an extension of the points that Jamie was making as he ended his comments. Um, this has included the features that were just highlighted both by Joey and by Jamie, weapons sales to the United Arab Emirates, recognition of Morocco's illegal annexation of Western Sahara against a backdrop of a UN process that has now been ultimately blocked by the United States, which was intended to actually serve the purposes of Sahrawi self-determination, and also the sidelining, of course, of Palestinian rights of self-determination. So the upshot of the core consequences, the immediate on-the-ground consequences of the Accords, is the harming of the most vulnerable communities in the region subject to the most systematic human rights violations from Yemenis um, whose interest and capacity to block the Saudi and Emirati coalition that is continuing to decimate them, to Sahrawis whose self-determination claims have been sold out, to Palestinians whose ongoing subjection to human rights violations has been laundered, and all of this in the name of consolidating what I'm going to describe as both a U.S. military footprint and also a preferred regional architecture that is independent in some ways of that footprint. So what is the U.S. military footprint that has been um, entrenched in some respects by the Accords? Uh, the U.S.'s global military footprint is comprised of military bases and weapons sales, but the preferred regional architecture for the region also depends on a political economy that is increasingly centered on Gulf energy security and support for Israel's growing security and technology industries. So I'm going to turn to each of these military bases, arms sales, and the political economy of the region before then going back to a broader understanding of how the Abraham Accords serves not only the purposes of entrenchment, but also realignment. Uh, for military bases, just to understand the magnitude of U.S. imperial reach, the United States has at least 750 acknowledged bases in at least 80 countries worldwide and spends more on its military famously than the next 10 countries combined, which of course include Russia, China, and so forth. It also has one of the heaviest military footprints in the world outside of the Korean Peninsula, specifically in the Middle East. It maintains especially a heavy footprint in the smaller Gulf kingdoms taking advantage and leveraging their relative vulnerability to establish durable military presence in the Gulf uh, to the tune of 13,000 troops in Qatar, the basing of the Navy's fifth fleet in Bahrain, another 13,000 troops, two air bases and another naval base in Kuwait, as many as 5,000 troops in the Emirates Abu Dhabi's Al Dafra Air Base, and at least 2,500 troops at the Prince Sultan Air Base in Saudi Arabia. So there's a literal physical military footprint that is very much 
centered on the Gulf and is part of a security architecture that combines direct military presence in the Gulf with indirect military presence in Israel in the form of enormous amounts of military aid, including arms sales, which was the second prong that I mentioned of the two pieces of what military imperial footprint looks like for the United States. On the arms sales side, the United States has sold $200 billion worth of major conventional weapons and related forms of technical support to nearly 170 countries in the last 15 years. It has approved sales of another $175 billion, so in other words, doubling that amount, just under the Trump administration alone in those four years. Uh, and this is in part because President Trump made concluding arms deals along these lines a signature foreign policy goal of the administration. And of course, as we've already now heard from both Joey and Jamie, one that was directly advanced by the Abraham Accords, which produced a new environment in which massive arms transfers specifically to the Gulf states was facilitated in ways that, of course, serves the interests of the Gulf states, but also radically expands the United States' own military industrial complex footprint in the Gulf beyond its direct presence in the military bases I named and the troop stationings that I mentioned to the form of arms flow that we've long seen and military aid that we've long seen anchor its indirect presence in, the, in Israel. So this is the beginning potentially of a move of realignment or pivot in the case of the United States, which is transitioning from potentially a literal military footprint and presence in the Gulf to a far more expanded pouring of military weaponry and sophisticated technologies together with potentially a smaller actual base of personnel who might serve as technical advisors um, and oversee the creation of a denser set of military networks under the control of the Gulf states themselves. U.S. arms sales to the Gulf states have increased more than threefold in the year after the Abraham Accords. Today, the Emirates alone comprises and is responsible for nearly 8% of all arms exports from the United States globally. And President Biden has clearly continued with this strategy again, as Joey and uh, Jamie have mentioned, uh, most recently in a $23 billion deal with the United Arab Emirates, which is fivefold the size of any prior set of sales to the Emirates previous to the Abraham Accords, um, which included the sale of F-35, so the most sort of sophisticated um, air artillery that's available in the United States arsenal, drones and other advanced weapons to the UAE. And this, of course, despite a congressional record of trying to block sales that would enable the continued targeting of civilians in Yemen and purported conditionalities based on human rights considerations and the de-escalation of civilian harms that is supposed to attach to all of these kinds of arms sales. Um, but in, in practice, with respect to the Middle East, in Egypt and elsewhere, has simply involved the kind of obfuscating and smoke and mirrors that Joey described in his opening presentation, in which small symbolic um amounts of military aid are temporarily suspended out of alleged interest in human rights considerations only to later be lifted the suspension to enable those arms sales. So we have the traditional military footprint. We have a massive expansion in the second prong of U.S. global military imperial um, management strategy, which is arms sales. And then we have the political economy dimension where the Abraham Accords have produced or accelerated the formation of an interlinked regional political economy that draws the Gulf and Israel far closer together. So just as one dimension of this, the Abraham Accords established something called the Abraham Fund between the United States, Israel, and the United Arab Emirates that created a $3 billion fund for private sector-led investment and development initiatives to promote 
economic cooperation and prosperity in the region. And one might ask what kinds of projects are being funded in this in the name of economic cooperation and prosperity. As Elham Fakro of ICG has documented in an article in Merip, the first declared objective of the fund was the modernization of 700 Israeli-operated checkpoints in the West Bank. In other words, the entrenching and making more durable and permanent Israeli occupation practices with Gulf funding. So again, the political economy of interlinkage is itself directly tied to the practices of the kind of military and regional security arrangement that the United States serves to anchor in the region. In addition to these elements, there is also an important degree to which the Abraham Accords is an extension of a longer standing underlying bipartisan commitment to American primacy in the region, in the Middle East, that sustains not only military networks and sales, but actually serves an important reputation laundering function for the authoritarian clients with which the United States enters into relations. So diplomatic cover for abuse, repression, and engagement in uh, grotesque human rights violations and violations of international humanitarian law all travel under the cover of what Jamie rightly named as the nefarious category security and the alignment of U.S. interest with the various clients, authoritarian uh, clients in the region is almost always presented as an alignment of security interest relating to stabilizing the region. The Abraham Accords adds a new element to this reputation laundering strategy by allowing the kind of long-standing pre-existing uh, set of relations between the Gulf and Israel, which uh, Jamie uh, nicely uh, summarized a moment ago, uh, which were increasingly becoming visible, including to internal domestic Gulf publics, back channels that were increasingly public between the GCC and Israel since the Arab uprisings, it now provides a completely different sheen of international legitimacy to frame the explanation for why it is that the Gulf uh, countries and Israel have entered into this experience regional alliance. And this has two elements, the first of which is, of course, containment of Iran, again, as we've heard uh, in great detail in the earlier presentations, but the second of which is the presentation of an alternative to the kind of democratic movements against repression that we saw in the Arab uprisings, a story about what stability and prosperity can look like in a political economy that is tied between the Gulf and Israel, and that enables new forms of essentially neoliberal um, mobility for a variety of Arab publics. And here, this is an especially important element of the rebranding of Saudi Arabia and its attempt to transform its own political economy into a kind of post-oil direction anchored on tourism. And now we see tens of thousands of Israelis uh, traveling to, for example, the United Arab Emirates, investments in technologies, and we see the flood of Gulf investment going into Israel at the moment, diversification of a kind that is now being sold as possible through a strategic alignment with Israel, and a just broadening of diversification of economic portfolios, which includes the kinds of strategies that Joey mentioned of um, creating new havens for kleptocracies, again, something being directly facilitated by relations with Israel. So the Abraham Accords has produced a kind of reputation laundering function that goes beyond the earlier strategies of simply covering the security abuses and repression of authoritarians in the region under the language of counterterrorism or shared security and stability alignment with the United States to a broader idea of what a transformed region might look like in the context of deepening um, political, uh, you know, economic linkages that cross from Israel to the Gulf. Against this background, 
One interesting question is, to what extent is this actually an entrenchment of American empire? And in what ways is it a realignment away from American empire? As Jamie and his comments made clear, the United Arab Emirates and others that are parties to the Accords view not only Iran, but importantly, democracy and demand, transnational demands for democracy as the principal threats to their stability. Uh, and the anti-democratic commitments of the members of this bloc that has been formed by the Abraham Accords is clear across the board. It is a piece of the regional security architecture that the United States enables. Um, basically, the core commitment is an anti-democratic commitment across these partners. As the United States pivots to Asia, and it, it is um, sort of attempting to strengthen this regional security architecture built on an alliance, while it turns its own primary security uh, commitments to the containment of China, the Abraham Accords provide a venue to transition to a kind of indirect rule. As I've already mentioned, the United States has yet to reduce any of its own military presence in the Middle East, but it does appear to be priming itself for that possibility. And in practice, the Abraham Accords have accelerated the alignment of interest between Israel, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Arab Emirates and Bahrain uh, that emerged as much in response to the Arab uprisings as to any threat from Iran into a bloc that is going to take the regional security architecture and commit it directly to the repression of democratic movements in the region. Ironically for the U.S., this is also now a regional bloc that is able to resist being pulled too deeply into the U.S. orbit. And this is the interesting element of the realignment. As has been already underscored, the Ukraine conflict reflects in many ways the fruits of an American strategy that has now exceeded the control that the United States once um, asserted and exerted over its security architecture. All members of the Accords have engaged in diplomatic hedging on Russia, declining the U.S. invitation to join sanctions, to avoiding votes in the United Nations against Russian aggression, and even engaging in direct outreach to Moscow. In other, and they have also gone on to exploit the Ukraine energy crisis, playing hardball with the United States, refusing requests to increase energy supplies, as we've already heard. And the UAE and the Gulf countries are now using the accords, I would argue, to diversify their security strategy away from the United States. So while Anchoring their strategy around Israel indirectly preserves partnership with the United States because each of these countries understands that U.S. dedication to Israeli security guarantees will continue even after a pivot to Asia. It also affords them a new margin of maneuver that enables them to be to some degree independent of U.S. priorities. Relations with Israel have afforded, for example, a measure of independent strategic capacity to repress democratic movements at home and confront Iran regionally. Through Irani, sorry, through Israeli sales of spyware, drones, and cybersecurity technologies to uh, all of these states, including the Emirates. So we've already heard that NSO Group's technologies were linked directly to the Khashoggi assassination, which helps describe both the domestic and the regional dimensions of how the Gulf countries have been able to deepen their own security strategy while rendering it to some extent more independent of the United States. So I'm just going to end by noting that. The political economy I described, which is now, I think, the anchor of a regional security arrangement that is U.S. stamped, but no longer necessarily directly backed militarily by a U.S. presence on the ground, is comprised of a region-wide surveillance and repression system that is facilitated by Israeli technologies, quite apart from the many other uh, dimensions, particularly with respect to Palestinian rights, that have been, um, you know, the, the many other adverse consequences that have emerged from the accords. Thank you, Asla. Uh, that was fascinating. Uh, Allison, please go ahead. All right. 
I'm still trying to process everything that Asla and, and Jamie presented. And I think a lot of my uh, intervention is probably going to be agreeing with, with much of what they've said. Um, of course, I'm not coming from academia. I come from a, a human rights and policy background. Um, that's probably why I'm the only one without bookshelves uh, behind me in the group. Um, so I, I'm going to do my best to provide some insights um, and, and observations based on what I've seen uh, in my role advocating on behalf of political prisoners, uh, but also generally advocating for human rights to now um, three successive administrations here in Washington, D.C., where I'm based. Um, I'm, I'm going to start with a little news anecdote that I think sums up some of uh, what we've been discussing here in terms of um, the the regional dynamics and this axis of reaction, as we uh, sort of cheekily have termed it. Um, so a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, I guess, Jake Sullivan made a, an unexpected trip to Egypt. And Egypt is a country that we follow quite closely. And uh, we were a bit stymied why he was going to Egypt. This wasn't a, a trip that we had known about. It was the day or two days after um, Shireen Abouakla was killed, a, a U.S. citizen. And so we thought, OK, maybe he's going um, to try to, you know, set up some kind of concerns around that. We know that he, there's been several trips to the region over the war in Ukraine. Um but what we f found out yesterday through some strategic uh, leaks that were kind of coming over the past days and then were confirmed in some Axios reporting is that actually Jake Sullivan had traveled to Egypt to negotiate between Israel and Saudi Arabia over the final handoff of the Tehran and Sanafir Islands. Um, if you recall, these are two islands uh, in the Strait of Tehran in, in uh, the Red Sea. They were Egyptian, you know, uh, Egyptian sovereignty was handed over to Saudi Arabia and there were massive, massive protests, um, at least relatively massive for Egypt uh, since 2011. I mean, these were some of the biggest protests in Egypt against this handoff of sovereignty to Saudi Arabia. Of course, there was no um, it was completely undemocratic um, and really required only Israel's stamp of approval. Now, all that happened in, in 2016. Um, and apparently now this is the, the clinching of the deal of the handoff of these islands. Now, this fits into um, some of the discussions around Abraham Accords, because, of course, what will Israel get in, in uh, you know, what, what's the trade off if they bless the handing off of these islands? Well, this is, will be a step towards normalization with Saudi Arabia. Um, what does the U.S. get? Well, the U.S. gets... Of course, now, you know, a feather in the cap, this would be what they're now already messaging as the biggest um, success in, in, you know, political success for the Biden administration uh, and the biggest success in the Middle East since Abraham uh, Accords were presented. Um, and we also understand that the U.S. Is, is probably interested in some concession on increased oil production from Saudi Arabia. Um, what does Egypt get? Well, hopefully some financial concessions and certainly uh, brownie points. That's to say maybe uh, we'll look the other way when it comes to some of these human rights abuses that um, Biden has been wagging his finger about. I think this story really encapsulates some of the interests that we've been describing here in the ways in which uh, U.S. empire and this access of empire is um, perhaps a little bit more complex than uh, it's been in the past, certainly from global war on terror era 
Um, as, as Joel described it, this apparent U.S. hegemony in the region um, has certainly been on the wane, and I think we've discussed that in several different ways here. Um, economically, you know, Jamie mentioned the the quote-unquote, well, wasn't Jamie's words, it was Sisi's words, money like rice that the, the Gulf has been investing in Egypt, um, even far outspending uh, IMF investments in Egypt. And, and even beyond that, we've seen China. Um, China surpassed any investors in the Middle East uh, in 2016 through much of its spending in the Belt and Road Initiative, um, funding a lot of these new development projects that we've seen in, in really transforming some of the urban uh, landscapes and urban architecture of the region, and, and also, um, as was mentioned, uh, investing in some of the reconstruction that's happening in, in Syria. Uh, so economically, we see the U.S. is, is sort of waning in influence, and, and actually U.S. spending has been decreasing in, in economic terms. Um, politically, you know, we've seen sort of incoherent and, and weak uh, and ill-articulated foreign policies from the Obama doctrine of leading from behind that I think was was generally regarded as a failed doctrine. Um, I'm not really sure what Trump's, if he's got a name for it, but this kind of love romance for CC and uh, MBS. Um, and then I think, you know, the Biden administration has been more defined by its failure to adhere to any kind of promises that it had proposed when it came comes to human rights. Um, meanwhile, Russia, Iran, UAE have built influence. We've already described that. Um, militarily, of course, as Asli just described very well, the U.S. is, is still dominant. Um, and so we have this sort of one-legged stool where the U.S. is projecting uh, empire now in the region, but without some of the other... Um, uh, ability to influence. And I think that this is this sense, as also called it, of a, a realignment, perhaps away on these other uh, economic and political terms, um, is really palpable right now in, in Washington. Uh, there's a couple of ways that I, I think that this is felt. One is, is a total loss of confidence in any kind of leverage. Um, I was in a meeting years ago, like around 2016, in which a State Department official said, oh, we don't we don't say leverage. We say influence. We don't call, you know, we say we don't when we're talking about, you know, trying to advance human rights or get release of political prisoners. We have influence, but we don't have leverage. You know, and then they'll say, well, what, what do you suggest we can do about it? OK, well, if we bring up any of these, um, you know, the military aid, the weapon sales, the, the political economy of uh, the military, all of which, as I mentioned, I mean, we even have laws that prevent U.S. law prevents uh, exports to countries that are engaged in intimidation and harassment, say, of, of people in the U.S. Let's just adhere to those laws. Then we see the second uh, kind of palpable feeling, which is this panic, absolute panic over the rising role of Russia and China. If we don't sell these weapons, if we don't maintain this um, military empire, then, you know, all is lost. Somebody else will step in. We, we've already ceded any kind of economic influence, et cetera. Um, and of course, this seemed to these these fears seem to play out uh, in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And, and as we are, were discussing, you know, because we did not see uh, the allies in the region rush to support the U.S. interests in that. I found the the G7 ambassador statement that was issued in early March very um, indicative of this kind of both condescension 
and sense of desperation around Egypt's role, particularly, the, this, this press release ended by saying, Egyptians know the value of diplomacy and dialogue. They know the honor of standing up for the rights of others. The UN General Assembly is meeting an emergency session this week to discuss this issue. Uh, Russia, we look forward to our partners, including Egypt, upholding the fundamental principles of the UN Charter. So there is a sense, and I think this is something that Asli was, was getting at, that we've kind of made our bed and now we're lying in it. Um, we, we remain beholden to Saudi for, for oil interests. Um, I was driving through rural New York this weekend and there's, you know, gas is over $5 a gallon. And there was a little sticker on some of the gas uh, pumps uh, was Biden saying, I did this. You know, I, I'm responsible for the rising oil prices. And of course, we know that, you know, foreign policy and human rights abroad don't don't win elections, but um, gas prices, rising gas prices can lose them. So I think we can almost certainly anticipate a meeting between Biden and MBS in the coming weeks. And as we've said, you know, oh, well, about Jamal Khashoggi, oh, well, about the Americans uh, who have been detained and are now in travel ban in Saudi Arabia. You know, we need to to increase oil production. Uh, we're beholden to we're beholden to having empowered dictators to maintain uh, stability and strategic partnerships. Um, after arguing for for years, maybe not arguing, but you know, insisting that there's no alternative to Sisi's brutal authoritarian rule, when the U.S. showed even you know this modest amount of support for a new National Council for Human Rights in Egypt and welcomed political aspirations of Mohammed Anwar Sadat and his work trying to free political prisoners in the country, Egyptian security forces cruelly and brutally killed his economic advisor, Ayman Hutud. I think there's only two ways that we can read this. You know, one is that the Egyptians have so little control over their security apparatus that they would just, you know, as they seem to have happened with Giulio Regeni and now again with Ayman Hutud, that, you know, people could just be tortured to death um, without any uh, sense of responsibility or accountability up the chain of command. Or the other explanation is that this was done very deliberately to send a message to those who tried in, in even an incredibly modest way to open up any space for release of political prisoners and advancement of uh, human rights or semblance of democratic ideals. Finally, I'm, I'm going to end because I know we're getting uh, close to an hour and we've all been been talking a lot. I'm really interested in getting to questions. But, um, you know, we've mentioned rightfully that, you know, the real um, casualties, I think, of, of some of this uh, realignment, entrenchment um, are those who are most vulnerable, vulnerable to human rights abuses. Um, but I also think it's notable that, you know, when we thinking back to the, the anecdote that I opened with, all three countries, Egypt, Israel, and Saudi Arabia, have been responsible for the death of Americans in the last five years. So not even the most vulnerable, but even those who hold American passports or legal permanent residents of the United States. The United States can't even, I mean, in any conception of national security, um, protect its own citizens and, and has had really no response um, Jamal Khashoggi, who is, of course, brutally murdered and dismembered. And now, you know, we'll see, uh, like I said, perhaps Biden meeting with MBS. Um, Mustafa Qasim, who is allowed to, to die in Egyptian pr prison as a United, citizen who, United States citizen, who is simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. There's been 
absolutely no accountability for his death. Um, and, and now most recently, Shireen Abuakla. Um, so I just wanted to end with, with you know, noting that these are, these are the casualties uh, of this axis of reaction. Um, and and I'll, I'll conclude my remarks there. Thank you, Allison. Uh, thank you, uh, Jamie, and thank you, Asla, as well. Um, I, I want to uh, direct something to uh, any of you who wants to to answer that follows on what uh, Allison ended with. Uh, the U.S. Committee to End Political Repression in Egypt is obviously focused on Egypt. Egypt is the weakest uh, internally of uh, the countries in what we've described as this axis of reaction. Um, and uh, even as far back as the mid 2000s, um, the United States Embassy was uh, writing memos according to the release of the uh, WikiLeaks documents that said that the Egyptian army was no longer capable of combat. Um, and so, uh, what, what made the Egyptian army uh, functional was its relationship with the US army. So if Egypt is so weak, both politically, internally, and militarily, um, why does the United States um, allow it to imprison 60,000 people and torture them and deny them medical care and so forth. I mean, th this is totally unnecessary. So we, any one of you who wants to take it, go ahead. Yeah, maybe I'll jump in just quickly to say that it, um, I think that in many respects, the United States has drunk its own Kool-Aid on this ideas about um, authoritarian stability. So there's a genuine fear of what the alternative to the CC regime might look like. And as we saw in the face of the Arab uprisings, I mean, the actual response of the United States and European powers was dismay at the possibility that these authoritarian regimes were being um, destabilized and then belated attempts to sort of catch up to history, but by supporting the SCAF to manage a so-called uh, transition and so forth. The reality is that the notion that someone like Sisi is a moderate is really a, a moderate with respect to willingness to serve U.S. interests in the region and to be easily sort of pliable and to keep a lid on his population and on the forces within Egypt that could destabilize the role that Egypt is playing in the regional security architecture that we described. Now, I think this is wrong for a lot of reasons, right? The levels of repression that are being um, you know, engaged in by the Sisi regime are fundamentally unsustainable. The politics of inequality leaves no possibility for mobility for the vast majority of Egyptians in ways that it seems very difficult to understand how that could be projected forward, even with massive amounts of uh, Gulf financing coming in to address, for example, the current food crisis as a consequence of the Ukraine conflict. None of it is sustainable. There's no employment. There's no strategy for um, young people in Egypt. There's no there, all the demands of the uprisings, um, you know, 12 years ago now are basically um, not only still present, but have become far, far more acute. Where the next explosion comes from um, internally in Egypt can't be known, but the strategy that's being pursued by the Sisi regime is profoundly unstable. It's also a totally incompetent counterterrorism partner, as you yourself just noted. The U.S. has assessed its military as being 
and basically useful only for the continued deeply corrupt economic mismanagement that Egypt is ruled under. I mean, that's what the military is doing in Egypt. It's siphoning off whatever assets and whatever um, monies exist in the public coffers into a particular client um, network. But outside of leveraging those kinds of patronage roles and to us an ever shrinking class of people within Egypt, it is completely incompetent in its core security goals, as is demonstrated in the Sinai. They cannot manage a small armed insurgency in any meaningful way. So Egypt is neither stable nor actually reliable as a counterterrorism partner nor anything else. But the U.S. deeply believes in its moderate authoritarian strategy from Egypt to Morocco to Jordan to um, Saudi. And, you know, if not only will they be meeting with MBS, but if Assad continues to be brought back into the fold and if Syrian reconstruction is funded by the Gulf, then that meeting too can easily be predicted. And the core is to, and and much of it has to do with Israeli perceptions of the region. Um, so, you know, stability in the, at the price that Israel has demanded of maintaining a particular kind of freeze at its borders is worth whatever price from the perspective of the United States, as far as I can see in the case of Egypt, at least. Jamie, Allison, do you, either of you want to speak to that? Yeah. I mean, the other thing I was going to say is I think that Sisi has positioned himself as the only alternative. And, and this is particularly why I brought up the, the story of Ayman Hudhud. Um, I think by having, you know, and I think 60,000 political prisoners is probably the low end, um, you know, having, and, and of course, those who have been, you know, the, the, the most influential organizers, the brightest minds um, that have had the most political clout, those are those are the ones who have had the the most you know egregious sentences, um, and and whenever there are releases, you know they are sort of these um, nominal releases. But when I, I you know I think that that for U.S. policymakers they look at Sisi as not even the least bad option, but the only option. I mean, anytime there's been any hint of elections or anybody who's gained any kind of political momentum, they've been you know arrested. Um, and so this is why I think even when there was this, you know, reconstitution of the National Council for Human Rights, maybe there was a bit of hope. I mean, you could tell there's always this hope that maybe Sisi will oversee some kind of reforms. He made this allusion at the, the recent IFTAR to like a national dialogue that would in include all players, um, you know, but none of this ever comes to fruition. Again, anybody who, who um, gains any kind of political uh, either internally with domestically within Egypt or from the U.S., um, political purchase is neutralized in in very very brutal ways, um, and and so I think that this is also I mean you know the idea that Egypt's too big to fail as Asli pointed out you know the idea of a, an, another popular uprising is is horrifying because I don't think that there's any sense it would be even as peaceful as it was in 2011. Um, and yet there's nobody who could step in in any kind of semblance of a democratic way or undemocratic way to replace CC at this point. So it does feel a little bit like we're stuck with him. I'd agree with those points. Um, <clears throat> I think there's a basic calculation here which is on the part of the, the US, um, a genuinely sovereign Egypt that responded to the will of most Egyptians would probably not be as, as tactile towards US interests as one that isn't. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood 
was actually very keen not to upset Washington. And although some people in Egypt think that there was a kind of conspiratorial relationship between the two, uh, there wasn't, but it wasn't the case that the U.S. was completely opposed to Morsi. But once Morsi was overthrown, um, the Obama administration very quickly uh, did what it could to ignore, literally to ignore the fact that there had been a coup and to kind of pretend it hadn't happened and sort of to legitimate their Sisi regime. I think for that reason that we have seen in the past an Egypt that was not democratic, Nasser wasn't a democrat, but that one was definitely sovereign and that had some sort of relationship to the populace, which was a problem. So I think that, that is, that's an actually existing problem. That would be the case. So that's different to what people, I think, in Western countries, the US, uh, the UK, other allies of the Egyptian regime should do, which is you know to demand that you don't uh, support these um, these kind of regimes. I think one can separate the two things. Like you don't have to provide an alternative um, to the Egyptian regime, if you like, in opposing its its um, its crimes. I also think. I mean, I would follow on from what Alison uh, said. I actually, I think that this is going to be a tough time for this Sisi regime in the next few years. I mean, Egypt is the largest importer of wheat in the world. Um, and also all of the inputs that go in in terms of fuel and so on, when you have these kind of um, price increases, they all they always cause a crunch for the way that the kind of Egyptian regime works. So I think that something will happen. What, whatever that's going to be, we don't know. But I, I don't think it's going to be easy for them. I wonder if we can tie uh, two kinds of things together. Um, what I would call a, a culture of torture uh, in the Egyptian security apparatus is arguably rooted in the Bush administration, Bush II administration's global war on terror uh, post 9-11. Egypt's former security chief, Omar Suleiman, was uh, known as uh, uh, Mr. Torture. Um, and so the security apparatus, having gotten used to that, it, that's how they function, as Allison suggested. No, no one can control them uh, without, uh, unless something really special comes comes along. Um, there's another respect in which um, emerging American uh, influence policy under the former uh, uh, administration of former President Trump but continuing now, uh, seems to be having uh, an openly corrupting uh, influence. And that is, uh, the New York Times uh, reported the other day that uh, former President Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and former Secretary of the Treasury, Steve Mnuchin, uh, have uh, established these phenomenally large uh, investment uh, firms, private equity firms. Um, Kushner, in particular, has no expertise in dealing with something like this, and yet they have recruited billions of dollars from the Gulf. Uh, and so this corrupt way of doing business that has long characterized the Gulf countries um, seems to now be part of how 
uh, important Americans um, close to the former president and close to perhaps our future president, if we can contemplate that outcome. Um, am, Am I in the right ballpark here talking about linking torture and big money together and corruption that way? Go ahead, whoever wants to. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think when you apply a kind of Marxist analysis to politics, there's always a problem that your Marxism might not be vulgar enough. And um, that's kind of shown at the moment. I mean, the real sleaziness of the way that these coalitions are formed, they really do work around the bottom line. Very straightforward. Very straightforward attempts to accumulate, not even just accumulate capital, cash, literally cash in the back pocket. But I think that it's not just big money, it's also small money. So one thing you mentioned about this Egyptian security services, this applies to most regimes in the region, I think, actually. They're quite factionalized. So once you introduce, once you have a system where you can kidnap people, shoot them, torture their relatives for bribes and so on, that becomes an easy way for uh, groups to compete with each other inside of these uh, regimes. And I think that a lot of, so um, the recent murder was mentioned, but also the killing of Julio Regeni are actually connected to that. So the, the, the right hand doesn't always know what the left is doing. We have a question from the chat. Um, could we hear more about how the emergent multipolarity might impact this axis of reaction? How will the contraction of U.S. imperial power affect these alliances? I'll jump in there, but I also had a thought on your earlier question, Joey, but maybe I'll just say one thing about the multipolarity. Uh, All of the actors that are emerging, so whether it's China or Russia, it's United States, are actually in many ways aligned in their authoritarian imperium. So it's not as if any of these are either pro-democratic actors or depart from the script of counterterrorism in an important way. Their practices are very comparable. So what they'd create, as I tried to mention in my comments at the end, is just margin of maneuver to, you know, for this new block that has, I mean, that has now, you know, accelerated in its formation and become a public fact um, to, you know, resist being pulled too deep into anybody's particular orbit and to chart a set of strategies that advance their own security, some uh, largely in alignment with the United States, but not always. As we've seen in the context of the Ukraine conflict, and also courting a very, um, you know, it's a pronounced diversification strategy. I mean, the interest of the Gulf in forging ties with China and in building um, relationships and sending students for graduate study to China and so forth has been, you know, present for more than a decade, but has really accelerated with each passing year in dramatic fashion. So I, I think what we can expect is that the same strategy that these actors on their own side as agents, so as agents who are interacting with American empire in order to advance their own interests, are going to interact in very similar ways with other potential entrants, neither of whom, by the way, I mean, even with the foothold that Russia has, which is much more extensive than China, are really present yet in the region in in important ways other than at the periphery from the perspective of the Gulf states. But nonetheless, I mean, their behavior makes very clear that they're prepared to court them and that they see them as further means of advancing um, reactionary counter-revolutionary projects, which are their own. 
right, which are not coming from the outside, they're advancing their own objectives through each of these kinds of relationships. And just briefly, I wanted to come back to the corruption, uh, authoritarianism, et cetera, point to say, this isn't new, right, by any stretch on the US end either. It's not that we're learning from our authoritarian clients, we're teaching our authoritarian clients, and we're learning from them. It's very much a sort of um, reciprocal relationship. But corruption, one should think of it almost as a factor of production, really, in the region. I mean, you know, the, the, the money that is greasing the wheels that makes that corruption possible is being injected from the outside as much as it is circulating on the inside. And our, you know, pieties around anti-corruption, et cetera, are just preposterous against an existing underlying empirical record. And, you know, and you can look at that across all administrations. You, you hardly need to look to the Trump administration for this. I mean, the Bush administration's, you know, um, prosecution of the Iraq war was a for-profit venture for members of the administration who then cycled in and out of positions in which they enriched themselves. And that's just a durable relationship that Eisenhower warned of long ago, but that has remained um, very much, uh, you know, continuous uh, across all administrations. It's part of the bipartisan consensus around American primacy is just how profitable it is for the political elites that govern and, and make the strategic decisions of how to direct that primacy. So Jamie's point about uh, we need to be even more vulgar than ordinary vulgar Marxism seems to carry. Uh, Allison, did you want to say anything about that before we go to the next question from the chat? Uh, yeah, uh, just something about the um, torture networks that I wanted to point out, and then a reflection on um, some of the human rights implications of these these shifting allegiances. Um, interestingly. So the tiger squad that had killed that killed Jamal Khashoggi was trained by the Egyptian general intelligence under Abbas Kamel. So they had flown to Egypt for training, including like day of training of how they were going to carry out that operation. And of course, Abbas Kamel has been, you know, in the Mukhabarat and, and was working with uh, Americans throughout the, the war on terror. Um, and and still travels to the U.S. I mean, he was here just a couple of years ago with uh, a document demanding the um, arrest of my former boss and friend, Mohammed Sultan, um, who was a political prisoner in Egypt. So I think that we are seeing ways in which, you know, uh, uh, these networks are are um, still alive and well and and reflect, I think, some of these uh, changing allegiances. The other concerns that are, are somewhat related to that are the you know, again, in, in terms of human rights, um, the the renewed new uh, dynamics around extradition and deportation that we're seeing. So we're we're increasingly seeing Uyghurs, for instance, um, extradited or deported from Egypt, from Turkey, where they for many years um, came to study and live uh, freely um, outside of the reach of the CCP, and, and that's no longer the case. Also from the Gulf, um, and we're also seeing now extraditions. From Sudan, for instance, from from Morocco into Egypt, um, and now with the new detente between Turkey and Saudi Arabia, you know the the, the famous McCamelin channel, which Jamie mentioned, was the one who broadcast the CC leaks that said money like rice shut down immediately. Um, and so I think that we will see now real threats for the di the diaspora, um, any who are in opposition. And now, of course, with the, the U.S. horrendous, really horrendous immigration policies, um, there are decreasingly any place for, for folks to go, for dissidents to go. Um, and of course, all that is facilitated, as, as we've mentioned, by um, these uh, 
sprawling surveillance networks um, that include, you know, not only Israel uh, and the Gulf and and the whole region, but also the United States uh, and Europe. So I think that these these dynamics are are particularly concerning. Thank you, Allison. Here's another question from the chat. What is NATO's involvement in the Middle East and North Africa? Any, anyone of you want to speak? So, um, as of course is well known, Turkey is a member of NATO. So to begin with, there is direct NATO presence in that sense. One of the countries of the region that is in one of these core blocks is a NATO country. Um, that being said, its interests are often in tension with those of NATO, as was made evident, for example, in Syria, in the campaign against uh, the Islamic State, which was being run um, in part through NATO, and uh, and Turkey was acting at cross purposes with that campaign, out of its concerns uh, about. Uh, Kurdish forces with which um, the air campaign was being coordinated. But more generally, I think NATO is present because through the United States, it is very much part of the overall um, set of security guarantees from which Israel benefits and therefore comes into the sort of alignment that we've been discussing now that has occurred through the Abraham Accords. But I'd be very interested to hear um, how the rest of the panel views the potential role that NATO might be playing in the region. Yes. Um, <clears throat> it should be mentioned that there was an attempt to create a Middle Eastern version of NATO in the 1950s, um, the Baghdad Pact, which actually collapsed. And the, the story of the collapse of that attempt is really the story of the rise of and radicalization of Arab and other forms of nationalism in the, in the region. So there's an allergy to, to that kind of involvement. However, uh, as Asla just mentioned, Turkey is a member of NATO. One of the reasons that the Trump administration withdrew the troops that were on the ground with the uh, the YPG forces in northern Syria, Kurdish forces in northern Syria, was that they knew that if they maintained them, they would actually have to fight Turkish forces, or at least help them fight Turkish forces. So two NATO countries would have to come to blows, which we also want to avoid as much as possible. So that's one kind of negative reason. Turkey is heavily involved. We haven't perhaps spoken enough about Turkey. Um, Turkey's heavily involved in Libya. So Turkey is basically the major sponsor of one of the Libyan contending governments um, with troops, I mean, actual troops there, uh, plus one of the big things that's developed in the past four or five years um, is the export of drone technology and the use of drone technology, uh, which is Turkish. Uh, well, developed also on Israeli models. There's this, not an entire another story about the, the kind of development of drones, but the spreading influence of Turkish drones also into the conflict between uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia, which is not quite in the classical definition of the Middle East, but it is related, actually. Um, so that there is something going on there. You're not going to see, ex there's no question of kind of NATO expansion into um, the Gulf or something like that. They, that. That's not really on the cards, never never has been. Also, I don't, they don't need it, I think. Um, also, I think NATO is actually now quite, it I wouldn't want to include countries that might go to war with each other. Uh, that, so I, I think that that would be a problem for them. So um, 
this panel, despite the excellence of all of the presentations, has really depressed me, uh, as I might have anticipated. Um, the only counter to um, all of this uh, ugliness on the part of the local ruling classes and the United States uh, is the popular uprisings, the first wave of them in 2010-2011, and then the renewal of uh, popular uh, uprisings, uh, first in Sudan and then in Algeria in 2019-2020, and then smaller uh, uprisings in Lebanon and Iraq and even a little bit in Egypt. Um, how likely is it that any of these forces are going to be able to get themselves together to uh, pose a, a viable opposition to the existing regimes. Well, Gamal Mubarak is apparently mounting his new uh, presidential bid. I don't know if you've seen that. It's a joke. He is do. He probably will do so, but I'm sure that's not what you were asking. Together with Saif al Islam Qaddafi in Libya, there you know, there's a whole new generation in the wings ready to take up the mantle of democratic legitimacy. Um, I mean, I'll just say briefly that it is no reflection on the the sort of depth of commitment and enormous courage that was that it took to undertake to begin with the original uprisings, but even more so, I think, in 2019 against the backdrop of the vicious counter-revolution that was experienced across the region, um, that what we saw in Sudan, Algeria, Lebanon, Iraq, um, I think Egypt was a little different, oddly diasporic driven, but the other four was really remarkable. And I think had it not been for the pandemic and the reality that the United States um, was pursuing an aggressive set of alternative strategies under the Trump administration, there might have been a window at that moment in 2019-20 for that to have galvanized again a broader um, trans-regional phenomenon. That didn't happen in that moment, and there have been very serious setbacks in Algeria and Sudan. Um, but I think what this indicates, and this is also the point I was making about Sisi's strategy in Egypt, is the deep unsustainability of the current arrangement in the region, notwithstanding whatever beliefs that um, you know minorities in the Gulf and Israel might might have. I mean, they have certainly they're triumphant, and there's no question that the Abraham Accords should be read as the victory of an authoritarian model over the possibility of transnational, regional democratic movements, and that victory has been purchased as a consequence of American empire. That's also true. It doesn't change, however, the reality that this um, order is neither stable nor secure nor advances the interests of the peoples of the region. And therefore, ultimately, it simply isn't going to be sustainable in the long run. What we can't do, unfortunately, is pull out a crystal ball and say when and where and which movement will be able to begin the process that we saw or continue the process that we saw begun in 2011. And that is very much continuing to work its way through the region at present. Um, predictions are difficult, especially when they're about the future. And I think that we can't really, as uh, Ashley said, pick particular places where something's going to happen or who's going to do it. Uh, I would just plug the fact that I've written a book about the past 10 years of counter-revolution in the region, which is available for sale, um, very reasonably priced uh, from Thursday. Um, but I think the place to watch at the moment actually probably is Sudan because there has been a counter-revolutionary coup in Sudan in the way that there was in Egypt, but I don't think it's actually been as successful as the Sisi 
regime was in building a, a popular coalition behind it. One of the things that we have to recognise is that, on the, first of all, the incredible depth and savagery of the counter-revolutions reflects how broad and large the protest movements were. So you're really talking about almost a, probably a million people killed in various wars, uh, executions, massacres, and so on over the past 10 years directly um, against the protest movements. Before you get onto all the people imprisoned, maimed, send it to exile, etc. So that that is a huge cost that obviously people experience as a trauma. But it also leaves a mark that people remember, uh, which will come back, I, I, I think, in a different way. Uh, you, you can't and you shouldn't try and expect the, the past to be repeated. The only thing I would add also is I do think that there are renewed solidarities that have formed amongst different political factions. And I mean, all jokes about Gamal Mubarak aside, I mean, talking about all strata of of society, certainly in Egypt. I mean, when when Sisi said, OK, well, we'll be open you know, to having dialogue with all actors. I mean, this was one of the maybe not the first times, but I, I think there was sort of an unprecedented, unprecedented willingness from Islamists, liberals, youth, business elite, et cetera, to say, okay, we're ready. We are ready to participate in this in this dialogue. Um, so I think that there has been, I don't know if we could call it a, a healing from um, some of the, the, you know, really deep um, and, and traumatic divisions of 2013, but it does feel like there's a reckoning with um, you know, as Jamie said, no. Joey, you're muted. We have about three minutes. So um, does anyone want to speak briefly about uh, Russia's growing ties with the Gulf Cooperation Council countries and the Saudi Arabia and especially the UAE in particular? That topic doesn't excite people. I mean, there's they've aligned around energy policy at a minimum that we've seen that very clearly. I'm sorry, Jamie, I saw you were about, about to speak. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. It's not completely new, uh, actually. Um, th that, as Ashley said, has been going on for a while. And you have to remember, these are all OPEC countries to start with. Um, but the UAE, in particular, in Libya, and something's not been mentioned is that in Libya, the allies are of the kind of, what would you call it, the most counter-revolutionary group um, are the UAE, Russia, and France. They've really cooperated heavily and cooperated heavily with some groups of Salafis, actually. It's a very strange sort of set of bedfellows. That's been going on since 2014, 2015. Um, and I would actually anticipate that although the Gulf have been Gulf countries have been basically excluded from the Astana process, so the Syrian negotiations, the carve up between Turkey, its proxies, um, Russia, Iran, and the Assad regime that's been going on for you know five years. I think the UAE will end up being involved in some version of that, actually. Thank you.
So we're just about out of time. So thank you, Jamie Allenson and Asla Bali and Allison McManus. And thank you to Haymarket Books for offering us a platform to hold this event. And uh, thank you again to our co-sponsors, uh, Internationalism from Below, Democracy for the Arab World, or DAWN, the Middle East Research and Information Project, MEREP, the Freedom Initiative, and the International Committee of Democratic Socialists of America. And this event was uh, organized and sponsored by the U.S. Uh, Committee to End Political Repression in Egypt. So thank you all for coming and thank you all for participating. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.